Hello and welcome to episode 222 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. And today on the podcast, we'll be fully diving in to 2023 in movies as we recap the highs and lows of this year's Sundance Film Festival. But first, how are you, Scott? I feel fed. Watched a lot of movies in the last seven days. I flew back from from Miami last Monday night, the Monday that the virtual film festival was starting. And uh, since then, I've I've pretty much watched either one or two movies uh, out of the Sundance Film Festival every day since then. So, yeah, it's 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 been it's been busy. You know, I've also managed to, uh, I guess, sleep in there and go to work as well. Uh, I do remember my first Sundance Film Festival. Gosh, two two years ago. This because this is my third. Two only two years ago. Um, 20, how many movies was it? Twenty. <laughs> twenty nine. I watched twenty nine movies at that Sundance <laughs> Festival. That was between. <laughs> that was between jobs. So yeah, I had just I had just quit my oh, job. Yeah. And I was about to start NBC, and I just said, "You were just letting it rip." <laughs> I just said, "F it, I'll buy the festival pass. Why don't I?" And uh, you know, I was honestly a little sad that I didn't get to thirty. Although, if you count Columbus, I did watch Columbus as it was like the test screen or whatever to make sure their yeah. virtual technology worked because they'd mm-hmm. never used it before because they hadn't been they'd been in person the previous year because it was January 2020 the year before that. Um, I did watch Columbus, so I think that counts as a 30th. And I also watched a documentary, like a four part documentary series or whatever about. Um, there's no reason to talk about that documentary. It was, doesn't matter. Um, but I watched that as well. So that probably counts as another movie. But so I got over 30, but I was very salty at the end of that, that I didn't squeeze a 30th in. I, I got to say, you're talking about the virtual platform. They have really got it down. Uh, because oh, yeah. It's perfect. I, I seem to recall, you know, that first yeah. year there were some bugs and like it would a sometimes bit. take a, a long time for your movie to start. It still worked really could, well, though, impressively for their yeah, first attempt. Once you it. got it started, like you were good, but it just like took took a bit. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's a well-oiled machine now. You just you click right on, it starts immediately. Of course, you'd have to watch like all the pre pre-show stuff. <laughs> God, like, I'm every so tired of time, Robert including. Redford welcoming me to the festival. Yeah, well, it is his <laughs> festival, so he's allowed yeah. to do that, I guess. But uh, but yeah, sure. you know, the land acknowledgement, which is important. But like once I watched it one time, I was like, okay, the I'm land good. is the like, land has been acknowledged. Can we yeah. get a skip option on? I mean, you can click to the end and like you know, which yeah. is eventually what I was doing, but. I, you know, I, it's a great experience. I highly recommend, you know, if you're interested, just get one or two films, you know, because you find, buy them all a cart. Yeah, you're interested, interested in. Yeah, it, it's a fun experience to, you know, to click on. You get like the intro to the movie with the filmmaker and everything like it really feels like. And you get a Q&A you know, afterwards, wa- too. Yeah, you're watching the premiere like it feels like you're there. It really does. You can do it from the comfort of your own home. So um, I, I think it's a great thing that Sundance, you know, first did by necessity but now is simply doing uh because it gets them more exposure for their film festival frankly um and i wonder if other film festivals are gonna follow suit in the future probably not but i don't think so um, no but yeah i mean you know it's something that will always be a draw for sundance even though they don't necessarily have like the quality of films that you're necessarily going to find at like it's um, a discovery engine though i mean it's meant to be yeah, yeah, New York Film Festival or even Cannes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's at the beginning of the year. It's meant to be a yeah. honestly more so than any other festival. I mean, most of all the fall festivals there, they're not really acquisition pipelines. But the Sundance yeah. Film Festival is really all about, you know, for the most part, getting getting a movie sold to a distributor. There are yeah. some exceptions to that. There are some movies that come into the festival that are already sold. I think 
I can't remember what it was. It wasn't not not fair play there, but there wasn't a victim suspect. I think was already sold going into to the Netflix, festival to yeah. Netflix. And I think there's, there quite were a a few, there's quite a few. I think that were yeah. Sold. The, the deepest breath, I think, might have already been sold as well. And then there's some that aren't weren't available virtually. To be fair, um, that only premiered in person at in the theaters that that were yeah. already sold. Um, so and that yeah. does include like Flora and Son, which is John Carney's new yeah. movie, the director Corey, of yeah. um, of um, Sing of Sing Street and Once and Begin Again. Yeah, Corey Finley's movie. What's that called? Um, oh gosh, it's a weird name. I don't I don't remember it off the yeah. top of my head. Uh, that one, Eileen, which is a pretty big one. That's directed by the guy who made Lady Macbeth. It stars um, Anne Hathaway and Thomas and McKenzie. Nicole Holofcener had a movie with Julia Louis-Dreyfus that um, yeah, premiered at the right. festival. Yeah, um, Landscape with Invisible a, Hand is the Corey Finley movie. Right, that's the Corey Finley movie, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a couple others, I think, that are like, you know, somewhat notable. Of course... I mean, I, I, Infinity Pool, I guess, like, I don't even really know how this ended up playing out because, like, it opened this weekend. Like, it, I guess it maybe a platform it had, debut. Yeah. yeah, it had an in-person premiere or something last week. But, um, but yeah, you know, those you hurt my feelings is the Nicole Hall of Center movie, right. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, those are the bigger ones um, that we weren't able to see, obviously, because they're only available in person, which is fine. I mean, of course, I. I I really want to see the John Carney movie. I've been dying for him to put out a new movie, but we're going to see it. I mean, it's Apple TV Plus has picked it up, I believe, in fact. So, um, Flora and Son. Yeah, that one was Apple TV Plus. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to see it um, sooner rather than later, probably. But um, yeah, Scott, you know, I was concerned. I, I got seven films. I was like, am I going to be able to fit this in? Because you had, you know, six days to watch all of them or something like that. Yep. Um, and I was just concerned with my schedule. You know, I was going to a basketball game, like just had other stuff going on. Mm -hmm. uh, not only did I watch all seven, uh, but I also watched Women Talking and uh, Infinity Pool in theaters <laughs> uh, in the last yeah. six days. So it's been a lot of movies uh, in the last few days. But look, I, I love it. Um, so it, it it worked out as far as the scheduling this um, this year where it didn't fall in like a week when I was traveling or something. Cause I do yeah. have quite a few weekends coming up. That happened last year. Right? Traveling. I think it happened last year. Too, Maybe you'd only were able to watch a couple of movies because of that. I think. Yeah. I think I only had like five last year maybe, but um, yeah. Also yeah. to be, I mean, not that anyone really cares about this, but it was different this year than it had been in previous years where basically right. there was the in-person portion of the festival that like exclusively for the first part the first week yeah, yeah the first week last week and then they were still showing some stuff but then the virtual window opened up and then any virtual film was just available to watch for essentially a week it was six days essentially a week to whereas watch in the in the past you had scheduled screenings for exactly the online second. films and you yeah yeah and then there were like second screenings where you know you had so you had many a day hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah you had a day yeah uh but you know it, once you start the movie you have five hours to to finish it i believe which is sounds yeah, right fine it's not like adam curtis was premiering any documentaries so you can get through any movie in five hours <laughs> also especially uh, if you watch it 2x speed it's really easy to bust through that yeah thing. yeah so, that so. is true but um but anyway scott i guess that's enough about the festival logistically we should yeah, probably should we move on to the news some of the movies no, yeah okay, <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. like i said i saw seven i think you saw ten yeah um and uh, and I think what we're going to do is just talk about a couple of highlights for each of us, sure. uh, and then we'll just kind of quickly run through the the brief summary on the other films that we saw. But Scott, I'll throw it to you first. Um, sure. 
single out one of the movies that you consider a standout. It can be, you know, obviously it can be a film that you liked a lot, but if there's a film that was particularly poor, I think there probably were in a couple cases, but that you want to yeah. talk about, but what's a, what's a film you'd like to highlight for our listeners? Yeah, I, I'll, I, we can talk about things there. Yes. There were a couple really quite poor, poor films that I, that I caught, that I caught at the, at the festival this year when this happened, you know, did you go to Sundance really if you didn't watch a bad movie? It's unfortunate yeah. that I happened to watch two bad movies, which is something you want to avoid when you're only watching 10 movies at a festival, probably. But we can talk about those a little bit later on. I'd like to highlight probably what was my ultimately my favorite film of the festival. It's one that was a little bit under the radar going in specifically because it wasn't advertised fully transparently ahead of time due to security concerns at the festival. And that is a documentary called Beyond Utopia. So I'm going to talk about actually, I'm probably going to talk about two documentaries here because I do think that they typically are the stronger parts um, of the Sundance Film Festival. The drama features are a bit more of a wild card. Sometimes you still find some really good ones, but I don't think it's a coincidence that the two or three worst films I watched at the festival were were documentaries or sorry, were, were dramatic features. There but anyway, beyond beyond Utopia, the reason why it wasn't clear to think to a lot of people, including myself uh, before the festival started, is that in the programming materials, they were very vague about what the film was kind of was about. They described it as people, a, a documentary of people fleeing one of the most uh, sort of oppressive and backwards places on earth. It sounds interesting just leaving it vague like that. But then when you sort of dig in and after the festival began, they revealed, I think after the first in-person screening that they had, that the subject matter of the film was actually not some sort of vague, like, oh, like niche society that people were um, fleeing as refugees from. It was actually a North Korea documentary, a documentary specifically about North Korean refugees escaping the country to live uh, in South Korea specifically. And the footage in this documentary is insane. Um, they really sort of split it up into three arguably four parts depending I, I guess three parts which two parts is connected by one central theme essentially one part is sort of a, a contextualizing almost like a, a table placement type um, storyline where it's explaining to you what it's like to live in North Korea and then what it's like for someone who defected you know decades ago to now live outside of North Korea there's this woman who doesn't really get a whole lot into her story of defection but is talking a lot about her experience and and providing the audience sort of context for what is going on and why it's such a complicated thing to uh, looking back on to a to realize that there is a whole different world outside of North Korea because of the sort of very oppressive nature of the society and the controlling of information that people in North Korea a lot of the time if not all the time really don't understand what the outside world is like they are fed uh, messages and propaganda that North Korea is utopia, um, you know, going to the title of the film. And when you are fed that your entire life and you're told that everywhere else on earth is worse than the place you're living in, it obviously creates a pretty myopic perspective on, on your life, even if it is in incredibly oppressive um, at the same time. So th there's one storyline that's sort of that's interwoven throughout the film that's just giving you that context, which. You know, I think a lot of people know that North Korea is this really, um, you know, oppressive dictatorship, you know, communist dictatorship. And I think that that is it's 
even even I in my cursory knowledge, like I still found it very informative, just to get sort of the basic storyline of that. But then the real, I'd say, the real meat of the documentary is around these two stories that they tell. One of a mother who has already defected from North Korea and is trying to arrange her son to also um, defect and, and flee the country. And the other is with a family, uh, an uncle, essentially, that had defected and then his family had been endangered and, and sort of um, listed for banishment, I think is the way that they describe it, basically to be um, rehomed into these really desolate mountain region in, in North Korea where you're basically just sent to die um, out in the wilderness, more or less. And there's this sort of like emergency evacuation of this family and and um, just really harrowing stuff. And and I won't go into too much because I think that there is a there is a dramatic element to the film as well around exactly how everything plays out. But what I will say is that at first I wasn't sure if having three different stories was going to be a really effective way to tell the narrative. If it was going to be a little too choppy or if it was going to sort of water down. Um, some of the impact of maybe one or or two of the storylines by cutting in and out. But I really think by the end of the film, it really justified itself in having the three different stories. A, because they're I think they're telling you they they are showing you three different experiences of defection and not really sort of blinkering you into thinking that defecting is one way or another. It really is this sort of multifaceted experience. And in some ways it can be good and in some ways it can be bad. Um, it can end, it can end poorly. Um, it can end. It can it can be sort of your your saving grace. It can it can it can literally set you free from the oppression of North Korea, um, or it can backfire in some ways. And so I think that the documentary just does an incredible job of laying out that those different kinds of experiences or different flavors of those experiences. And then yeah, the fact that this documentary filmmaking team was essentially able to send their team into the defection process like they basically drop them into vietnam um as this one family is defecting through you know they get through china they enter vietnam they go through vietnam and laos to get to thailand and then from thailand to go to south korea so it is this like incredibly you know just this harrowing adventure it takes like set it takes like three months basically to go from fleeing you know the day you flee across the river to china and from north korea to getting to South Korea, it takes like three months or something like that in this process. And it's incredible. And the one thing that sort of anchors these defection stories, these two defection stories that are sort of happening in real time is this South Korean pastor who is the one sort of orchestrating um, all of these, what they're called brokers, which I thought was ironic given the South Korean film uh, or Jack, I guess is it, is it a Japanese or South Korean film? I mean, because I think Corey, it qualifies as a Korean film. Okay, yeah, uh, even though Korea is Japanese yeah, by a Japanese uh, filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the Korean film broker this past year who's selling, you know, adopt like basically selling children for adoption. Uh, but in this case, they're like coyotes. But like you think of coyotes or something like that. Um, uh, people who are smuggling people across borders and things like that. Um, in the U.S., you might call them like you know coyotes. And if you're talking about the Mexican border, um, but they're called brokers here in the in the film, and it's really. I mean, it is footage of literally this family defecting through Vietnam, through Laos. And it's just sort of remarkable, like just a remarkable archive of human history. And the fact that they were able to bring this all together and, and put it into one package. The filmmakers were talking afterwards about how they really have a second whole film about this other storyline that I started with at the beginning about her whole story and her whole process. But just thematically, it felt very different and less, less pressing and less relevant because 
it had been, you know, 15, 20 years in the past. And so they didn't want to money the narrative of what it's like, you know, closer to the present time of defection. And they said they worked her in just talking about the context of North Korea and the rest of the world, which I thought was was interesting. And I'm curious if they ever will, you know, cut together that second film and tell that person's story, whether it's in maybe like a short form limited series type format, like a, you know, a three part documentary series or something like that, or a, another film. It'd be interesting to see if they if they cut another film out of it. But just really remarkable stuff. It's it's kind of the film that I'd say, you know, if I had to pick one film that everyone should see coming out of the festival, you know, it doesn't have distribution yet. I will be shocked if it doesn't get picked up by someone. I don't think North Korea is a controversial topic for any international distributors. I don't think that anyone's trying to get their films distributed um, in North Korea. I know that it's sensitive because, you know, if you have things like, was it, was it the film The Dictator? Um, I always forget. The what Sasha Baron Cohen? Yeah, what no, was no, the, the, the interview? That was, was the interview, the yeah. yeah. I know that there's some, like, politically sensitive stuff around that and and Kim Jong-un threatening to, you know, essentially... <laughs> Uh, start wars with people who, who distribute stupid, movies like this. It's one of the dumbest movies. Well, yeah, that you'll it's also ever not a good watch. movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But this one is an important film, um, a really important film, and I think it really celebrates the heroism of not just you know the the defectors who are brave enough to flee a country like that and sort of leave everything behind that they know, but also of this of this man who is orchestrating so many parts of the defection process just out of sheer, you know, goodwill. I mean, I'm sure he he has donations and things like that, but, you know, he's also running a church in South Korea. It's pretty crazy, um, pretty remarkable, a pretty remarkable individual. And if there's one film that I had to recommend out of the new, out of the Sundance Film Festival this year, it'd be, it'd be this one. So keep an eye out for it in the next year. I'm sure it will get picked up. I'm sure it will be nominated for Best Documentary Feature. Um, Timestamp this now so you can come back and tell me it didn't get nominated in huh. 12 months or whatever. I won't let you forget. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, yeah, Scott, uh, excluding the movies that, you know, like we were saying, were only available in person. Um, this is probably the movie that I didn't see that I was that I'm the most interested to see. Um, mm-hmm. I, like you were alluding to, also didn't really hear about it until, you know, the festival had begun. Yeah. Um, and you alerted me to it. Um, at that point, I just didn't have like time to go seek it out like you did. Um, but yeah, it seems like, you know, this is probably going to be the significant like um yeah international events documentary like of the year you know like navalny was last year yeah um yeah in terms of international yeah i mean it just feels like an essential piece of world film like world documentary filmmaking for sure right um and you know i was telling you that uh i still remember like in college watching the uh the vice special that they did when they went to north korea it was only like an hour long maybe um on you crazy though and oh yeah it was just remember like there are moments and images from that documentary like that short film i guess it really is that have stuck with me for you know that was 10 years ago or something now practically when i watched it um and you know i still remember it because of how chilling it was so i'm sure this is just that times 10. so yeah and and i and i think it's fair to say that this documentary does not pull its punches. I mean, it's not like it's like crystal clear 4K footage of stuff happening. It's like cell phone footage sometimes of what's but they have footage from inside North Korea that this pastor has acquired and as part of the network that he operates. Um, and that include I mean, that includes like executions like there's like cam like phone cam footage of executions in the film. Like it does not pull any punches about the severity and, and the direness of situ of the situation at all. 
I'm curious if it gets yeah. re-edited out like later on, but um, by wh- whoever picks it up, but we'll see. We will see. Um, all right, Scott, moving on to the first movie I want to talk about, um, and that's a movie called A Little Prayer. Yeah. Um, this is a film that has now been picked up by Sony Pictures Classics. It's going to be distributed by uh, them of the famed blue screen, uh, splash screen. We'll be uh, waiting for something to come out this time next year. Potentially, but uh, I was intrigued by this movie for a couple of reasons. The main reason, Scott, is actually that the filmmaker Angus McLaughlin uh, is from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I lived for four years um, when I went to Wake Forest and then subsequently. Uh, He is a graduate of the UNC School of the Arts, uh, which is a pretty notable art school. I'm not going to go down the whole list, but you can go look up um, who some of the famous alumni are and, you know. For example, one person that just off the top of my head, Jonathan Majors, right? Big, big star right now, um, is about to be in Ant-Man Quantumania. Um, he, he's from the UNC School of the Arts, which is in Winston-Salem. So um, I wanted that, you know, to see it because of that reason right away, because um, the film is also takes place in Winston-Salem, a shot in Winston-Salem. It's not a type of place... Um, obviously that is the setting of a lot of movies or that a lot of you know significant um art is produced by um artists who are from winston-salem so i thought that was cool um but it is basically uh this low-key sort of southern drama and angus mclaughlin um he's most known for being the screenwriter of the film june bug uh from back in 2005 which premiered at Sundance and uh, was kind of the breakthrough, one of the breakthrough roles for Amy Adams. It was her first um, Oscar nomination was for uh, Junebug. Um, Angus McLaughlin wrote that film. He's directed a couple of films since then, but nothing, you know, that pe- most people would have heard of probably. Um, and now he's back with this film. Again, like I said, it's set in Winston-Salem. It is this sort of gentle Southern drama and it focuses on this one family. Um, the father is played by David Strathairn. Uh, the mother is played by Celia Weston, who's also in Junebug. Um, and uh, and their son, who's played by Will Pullen, and his wife, uh, who is played by Jane Levy. And they all live together in this uh, small house uh, in Winston-Salem. And... Um, David straight there and has a business that he runs um, and his son works with him at the business. Uh, but basically sort of what sets the plot, if you know, there's in the, this is not the type of movie where there's a lot of plot, but what sets it in motion is that David straight um begins to suspect and, you know, discovers pretty early in the film that his son is having an affair um, with uh, one of the, assistant secretaries at his office at their office um and david strathern he he has a close relationship bill is his character's name he has a close relationship with his daughter-in-law with jane levy again they live together um and they are sort of uh you know they get they get each other very well um they they connect with each other more so than it seems like he can connect with just about anyone else so he is really put in the position of you know, what is he supposed to do? Because on the one hand, this is his son, um, you know, and, you know, his blood relation. Uh, on the other hand, you know, he, he feels terrible, obviously, for his daughter-in-law and they have a connection. So 
what is you know how how is he going to navigate that situation and watching him navigate it is you know he begins to sort of um, have this sort of you know internal crisis about the fact that he is kind of this you know very easygoing very compassionate very you know um, kind person and yet you know the people who are closest to him and his son um, and also his his daughter who shows up later in the film she's played by Anna Camp um, and is kind of just all over the place um, the closest thing probably the movie has to like a caricature character but doesn't quite go all the way there which is good obviously um, the the you know the children that he that are his children that he you know he is supposed to have imparted his wisdom on and, and all of his good qualities on um, are kind of you know in both in terrible places and so it's him kind of reckoning with you know what role if any did he play in that and um, how can someone like him who seemingly has always tried to do the right thing um, have produced you know kids who are not themselves doing the right things and making uh, very poor decisions with their lives. So it's an interesting, it's a complex film in that regard. It's more, you know, more complex than might meet the eye. Um, but it is a, you know, a gentle, quiet film. It is a type of film where people are going to say, you know, certain audiences are going to say, well, this is boring, nothing happens. Like, you know, well, what's the point of this? Um, but I found it very emotionally effective, like by the end, like really overwhelmingly so in a way. This final scene that David Strathairn and Aunt Jane Levy share is um, it really it really hits you. Um, but there, there's something so authentic about this film. And again, I think a lot of it does come from the fact that I'm from the South. I've always lived in the South. Um, my parents reminded me reminded me a lot of the David Strathairn and Celia Weston characters in this movie, and watching them interact with each other reminds me of what watching uh, my parents interact in in some aspects. And um, even I'm like, so curious what you mean by that. <laughs> I I don't even know. Like I wish I could uh, you know point it out, but it's really it's just like the rhythms of like how they talk to each other and it's not something specific that I can even point to, but like, just like watching the first moments of this movie, like when they're in the house together, they're like making breakfast. They're just like talking. I was like, this feels like being back at home. Like this feels like being back at my home in Tennessee. Like, I don't know if I how, you know, again, how I can describe it um, exactly what it is that makes me feel like that. But he, he nails it. I mean, again, he's from Winston-Salem. He's a Southern filmmaker. Like, you know, he, he obviously gets it, and um, it really struck a chord with me in that regard. Just, like, the atmosphere of it, I think, is is perfect. It's um, the way he scrambled the eggs. That's why. Yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, the, the story does go in some interesting directions. Um, and there's basically, again, I'm, I'm obviously not going to spoil it because nobody has seen this yet. But um, there's something that happens to the Jane Levy character that you would not necessarily expect this film to, to touch on that subject, uh, but it does. And it does so in a very sensitive and um, again, nuanced way. And the performances are really what makes this movie, um, you know, David straight there is somebody we think of normally as a character actor. He's been in so many great parts over the year. You know, he was in 
the Bourne films is probably one of his more famous supporting roles. He was in Nomadland just a couple of years ago. Um, his one, you know, sort of leading role that he's noted for was his one Oscar nomination, which is when he was in Good Night and Good Luck, the George Clooney film playing uh, Edward R. Murrow. But he's such a wonderful actor. I have always loved him and everything that I've seen him in. And he is perfect for this role. Because, you know, again, you need to just like understand this, that almost from the get go that this person is just kind of this, you know, again, compassionate, like fundamentally good person who is just trying to do the right thing. And you just feel that way about David Strathairn when you see him on screen. He just has that about his screen presence. So it was perfect casting. Uh, and he, you know, navigates the emotional landscape of the movie really, really well. And, you know, even though he is known as a character actor he can clearly step in front and lead a movie like this as well and jane levy as well is excellent in this movie um you know i she's popped up in in random things here and there you know she was on a sitcom for several seasons on abc she was been in like don't breathe never anything where i was like blown away by her or like you know wow this is this is someone who's about to be a star but um yeah she's phenomenal in this movie and again she and Strathairn just like play off each other perfectly and they need to in order for the whole arc of the movie to work really um and that there's one scene again that i was kind of alluding to earlier about something that happens to her character where um she gets to do some really um big like nonverbal acting uh and it's very very compelling um I mean, she, she's, she is as happened to be the lead in like one of the worst shows of all time so Zoe's Which extraordinary is. playlist is that one of the worst shows of all time I've never seen it that's right I haven't seen it either but I have it on good authority that it is it's a hate okay. watch for sure yeah before I, I was thinking more I think there was a show she was on on ABC before that I don't remember what it was called but um but anyway that was when I first became aware of her but you know she has left her sitcom days behind her at least when you watch a role like this like this is um you know, some big time acting that she's doing here and she's nailing it. Celia Weston is great. Again, the family dynamic, you totally believe in it from minute one. Um, so, you know, it's it's not a film for everyone. Like, it's just like, a, you know, very quaint, again, simple in some aspects, but also deceptively complex um, Southern family drama um, that, you know, just moves along um, at its own pace. It's only... 85 minutes or so so it's not like it you know where's that nice. it's welcome or anything um but i just was i thought it was wonderful i thought it was you know a beautiful film um it really touched me by the end and it is worth seeing for the performances alone because um david straight there and jane levy in particular are you know they're going to be, i'm going to be taught these performances are going to be like swirling around my top fives or whatever for the year i'm sure for most of the year they're they're that good it's a it's a big year scott i don't know if you've checked out the most anticipated list you you're confidently it, it, saying that right now it is and i i am confidently saying i'm not saying they're going to be in the five but i'm saying they're going to be in the conversation like i i would be shocked if they aren't because um they're the two best performances i saw in anything at sundance this year like you know maybe that's not a high bar but um yeah for, what, for are, the what are the other dramatic films that you saw yeah. Well, I mean, the Starling Girl I watched. We'll sure. get we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, there's good performances in some of the movies that I watched, but um, uh -huh. these were kind of like, you know, above and beyond. Sure.
Yeah, I mean, I feel obliged to say uh, Davis Straight there and Williams College alum. Let's go. That is right. I think I saw that the other day, and I meant to, uh, to bring that up. But, yeah, what a great actor. Kind of wish he had had more leading roles over the years. But, um, yeah, he's so good in this. Yeah, uh, and then Scott, Jane Levy, uh, Suburgatory. That's the ABC show. That that's the off. show, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I remember because I well, always my family always watched the middle, and I think it would, like, come on either before or after the middle. So, on abc but Congrats. remember when we watched network tv scott that was an interesting time i mean 2000s we were living man i don't know wait like 24 house they still all they the still usa shows show, they still put shows out on on networks did you realize that i i didn't i do some of them are quite popular on peacock uh, ever heard yeah, of a guess, law and order I guess svu you uh yeah i know it because taylor swift named her cat after uh, olivia benson but that's the only reason i know it should we t- should we talk about another uh, Olivia Benson related piece from Sundance? No, maybe not. <laughs> oh yeah, I was like, <laughs> what are you getting at here? But yeah, now I know. But no, I don't think that's the next film you want to talk about, no, Scott. No, no. What is the next film you want to talk about? You know, I I talked about one good thing, Scott, and I and I can't. I just I feel like the next two films you're going to talk about one that I saw. So I feel like I got to give you one that I saw as well. And so we're going from the top of my list to down near the bottom. I'm not going to say it's the worst film that I saw at the festival because I do think that Bad Behavior was worse. Um, mainly because at no point was I ever enjoying watching that movie. And for disclosure, but yeah. for just before we, I'll just, you know, uh, rip off the band aid now. Yeah. Sure. I didn't finish Bad Behavior. I started <laughs> watching it. I did not finish this film. It was incomprehensible. It was insufferable yeah. to watch. I made it. <laughs> close to an hour i could not finish it this is uh, yeah. jane campion's daughter alice engler her directorial debut i've enjoyed her as an actress and some stuff in the past and the power uh, of the dog last year. jennifer connelly stars in this film which was, was alice engler in the power of the dog she was apparently yeah. i don't remember her in it but she, she was, was in them that in... follow that's the main movie that i remember her being in and she gotcha. was quite good but um jennifer connelly's in this movie it, it, it there i like you know you said it, Scott. It was a sunk cost at that point. I already paid twenty dollars for it. You weren't getting the money back either way. Yeah. So I why not go watch, I don't know, University Challenge or something for 30 minutes that I had sure. to be watching that movie. So um yeah. yeah, I couldn't finish that movie. But anyway, go on, Scott. I mean, I'm not gonna say I wish that I hadn't finished it because sadly the last 30 minutes that you didn't watch were the most watchable parts of of the film, I'd say. Um, but it probably wasn't worth it at the end of the day. That's not the film I wanted to talk about, though, because I want to talk about what is easily the most outrageous <laughs> film at the festival, that at least that I saw. Um, not even close. Bad Behavior was just bad because I just hated it. Like, I just didn't enjoy watching it. Like, I would just, it, I just it was just like, I don't know what's going on. Whatever. Um, Cat Person, however, on the other hand, that that's a movie, Scott. Now, that's a movie where we had seen, you know, we were, picture. we were seeing some reviews that said, you know, this thing really falls apart in the third act scott and i was you know as things went along i wouldn't it wasn't great like it wasn't a great movie up until the third act but it certainly was watchable amelia jones who is the star of the film um you know recently seen in other sundance movies like last year's best picture winner coda um she's the star of the film and then you have nicholas braun of course you know of succession fame in the film as well. Also, in a was was Zola a Sundance movie last year or a couple of years ago as well? I can't. Yes, remember. I believe that that's right. Yeah. 
so he he's in the film as well um and then geraldine viswanathan who is someone who i keep thinking is going to take off but just like hasn't yet um somehow some way whatever so like yeah, the cast is game gonna be she's gonna be in something coming up that's pretty big the, keep talking I'll, I'll figure it out yeah the cast is good Susanna Fogel who is the writer of she was the I think she was the co-writer or the single writer on Booksmart co- no because Katie Silverman I think also that's right that's right yeah so co- co-writer on, on Booksmart you know one of my favorite movies from 2019 hilarious film and she's adapting I think like the most read New Yorker article of all time or, or whatever I don't actually know what all the awards or plaudits are for the film but a very famous New Yorker article um, about you know basically modern modern dating things like that and the film is going along it's good but not great i would say there's some weirdness some some definitely some very strange choices that that did not totally vibe with even in the first two-thirds of the of the movie but i think was like all in all in terms of adapting the story did it you know fairly effectively um again some weird choices but overall was fine and my God, this thing jumps off a billion foot cliff. It's still falling. It has not hit the ground yet. That's how tall the cliff it jumped off was um, in to, the third act of this of this film. To be clear, uh, you know, because I said this to somebody else and they're like, well, I read the article. This goes beyond the article. Yeah. There's a point of about 30 minutes from the end where you get to the last part of the yeah. article. The, the thing that happens at the end of the article happens in the movie. But there are still 30 minutes of the there, movie yeah. left. There's the third, but there's a third act of the film, Scott. That's the problem. Yeah. And, and... Th- this sort of like strange... I mean, to be fair, Susanna Fogel, because I did mention her, she's directing the film. She did not write this film. This was written... A screenplay is from someone else. I'm not familiar with her. I didn't really look her up because... I probably should just make sure I stay away from all of our future movies because the writing decisions that are made in the third act of this film completely undermines the rest of the film. It undermines what I would have interpreted as the meaning of the article when it was written. And yes, for going like forget whether it undermines the source material, which I'd argue that it does. It just makes no absolutely no sense whatsoever. It's hard for me to tell you like, what was like what the message was that was they were trying to get across in the third act of this film other than um you know there were there were there were bad people or good people on both sides <laughs> yeah the best exactly. I could come up with um uh, which you know which is again is not take. the point of the article yeah. at all yeah yeah it really isn't and yeah i mean i don't know how much i want to talk about the spoilers of the film Maybe we should just spoil it, Scott, because I think it's better if people just know and don't go see the movie ever. I mean, this thing isn't picked up for distribution. But basically, if you're not familiar with the article, it's about this very like weird interaction that this um, college woman, this 20-year-old woman has at her workplace. Um, she works in a movie theater with a, a I wouldn't say like, like young adult male patron. He's like, you know, 10 years older than that. He's like 30. Well, 30-ish. I, if, if I may... I wouldn't sure. even describe it necessarily as a weird interaction. I think that's one of the things about it is that's it fair. basically t- turns into a story about someone who, and this is like the relatable part of it, I think, for a lot of people our age and stuff. Uh, someone who is one person when they are texting, uh, but is sure. kind of a completely different person in the way that they present themselves. And sure. Amelia Jones' character falls for the person in who is texting 
and but the actual guy nicholas you know the actual nicholas person behind yeah. the phone is much less interesting or attractive i actually think it's even more interesting than that though because i'd say it's not even necessarily that he presents himself in a different way over text i think there is some element of that but it's this i think there there is also this like I don't think it's super controversial, but this interesting element of the fact that like the the people that you make up, like the individuals and the personalities yeah. and the characters that you just create in your brain while talking to someone who you're not face to face with, whether they're presenting that way or not. I think you could have a debate about that. I'd argue this film. It's a little bit of both. I think this person like, yes, he's talking quite differently and behaving quite differently over text than he is in person. But I think there's also this element that is separate from the text messages that she's just completely created in her head and this it's like idealized version of him. It's all like gamesmanship in a way. And and he knows how to play the part of the game that is like the text message part of the game, right? Sure. But I agree with you that the one the one element where I was like, they kind of had something there was, you know, her thought process. Now, I don't, again, I don't even really like how they executed it. Like there's all these dream oh, yeah. sequences, like nightmare yeah. sequences. But there was one moment, right, where she is like, it, it truly seems like things are about to break down. And she invents basically this scenario where he is talking to his therapist and oh like, yeah. you know, to rationalize the situation, his behavior. Here, yeah. Here's the, here's the reason why he might be acting like this. Yeah. Not because he's a terrible person, right? Like you don't want to accept that that's the actual reason he's acting right. like, that. right. No, it's because he cares about me so much or whatever, you know, it is that he's telling his therapist like that. Um, he just is tripping over himself. He doesn't know how to act because yeah. and, so I thought it, that was interesting because we do that. I mean, people do do that for sure. I, I think, I guess just to, just to sort of wrap my thoughts up and then throw it over to you. I'd say the, the main, the main like real core issue besides just like the weird undermining it. And just to, to dig into that more carefully is that I feel like the article and the first two thirds of the film are so built around ambiguity in, in some part, like, there it is ambiguous to the like exactly what extent is he's a he's a really bad guy or is he just like kind of a bad guy that you don't really want to spend much time with after the fact and there's this amb like there's this line of ambiguity around how much of this is in that is she manufacturing in her head um versus how he's acting in reality and, and that goes both ways like good and bad and i think that the article is all about this sort of like anxiety and paranoia that arises out of these bad interactions um, you know, in relate like in dating and relationships, et cetera, that sort of come out of that. And the third act just sort of smashes that all together. Not only does it say that he is as bad as she thought that he was in terms of what he was doing, maybe he's even worse <laughs> than that. But then she also is is sort of like perpetrating crimes against him um, as a result of this, which is very strange. I think that, you know, if you believe you're being like for individuals who believe they're being stalked by men, which does happen. It happens frequently. I knew plenty of people in college who felt like and were being stalked um, by by men or had experienced that in the past. I like it doesn't really feel like the way you want to write the end of that story where it's left at in the article is this person commits crimes against that against the person who is stalking them. Basically, it just it's just baffling. It's just a really baffling choice. Um, but like not baffling in a concentrating way but baffling in like a, in an extremely like upsetting and outrageous way i think to really injure movie that way and then i'm sure you want to talk about this because because you brought it up i think when we were talking about the film after but the the very final note that the film leaves you on <laughs> um yeah scott do you want to talk about that 
Yeah, well, first I want to say, you know, I think the thing about the story is, and I actually remember reading it when it came out, Kristen yeah. Rupinian is the name of the author of the story. And then, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there, I don't know if you remember this guy, but there was like a controversy a couple of years later where someone who was an acquaintance of her came out and said, oh, no, actually, you borrowed a lot of this from my life. And uh, yeah, interesting, yeah, right. crazy stuff. But um, like you say, it is there is ambiguity until there is not right yeah. and the ending moment yeah. of the story is when he goes on this text vendor after it seems like they have split amicably and he's being an adult about this yeah mature he very said, mature about it goes yeah. on this text vendor and ends it ends with him calling her a whore yeah. um and so it's like well you know there's no more ambiguity at that point right we we know who the villain is um yeah. but then to your point the 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 film for some reason decides to try to introduce ambiguity into the situation again when both the ship them. has sailed the yeah. ship has sailed right he called her a whore like you can't really come back from that um and yeah and then it starts both sides it it turns into a thriller right which i you know Baffling. i hate to say it scott but you know let's talk about another sundance movie from a couple of years ago promising young woman it was sure. a big hit it was a what? successful film it was a critic you know it was an awards award-winning film oscar-winning film and it has the same sort of thing where it pivots into a thriller and just totally confuses thematically confuses everything in the third act and that's exactly what happens in cat person and i am certain that they were probably influenced in some regard by promising young woman to go in that direction because that film was so successful and was like you know did sort of penetrate beyond just film bro culture or whatever like to being talked about by people but um you know i'm not a fan of that film at all definitely not a fan of cat person um I, this was the worst film that i finished at the festival um and speaking of, of, of the finish at the finish of the film scott yeah they they go to his you know it's sometime later after everything has gone down um and they go past his house, uh, uh, Amelia Jones and Geraldine Viswanathan. They go past his house and they kind of stop and look at his house and the burned out carcass of his house. Yeah, yeah. They're talking yeah. about the fact that he's now left town and yeah. um, no forwarding address. No forwarding address, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it is like treated as this like somber moment of like well oh that's so sad look at what look at this unfortunate thing that happened to this guy because of this situation and i was just like what are we doing here like yeah. it is so crazy it is beyond crazy that that is the direction that they go in especially because uh, it go it goes out after her him calling like this doing this text thread that you were talking about ending it with calling her a whore or whatever he then like it, it comes to light that he had definitely been stalking her yeah. um as as well so it's it's not like because he had his dog yeah he had his yeah. dog anyway yeah but yeah i mean you know even taking the element out of it that it goes beyond the story and like completely counteracts the the you know purpose of the story at least as i interpret it i mean it just all just on any level it doesn't make any sense to all of a sudden take the the film in this direction in the third act um yeah it it's it's terrible it's a terrible film. Don't watch it. It's, you know, 
it's going to be continue to be talked about, I'm sure, because the article was so talked about. Who who's distributing this guide? Is this a it doesn't have distribution? Right? It doesn't have okay. distribution. Well, it's it's going to get it just because of the profile of the film. But um, yeah, just read the article instead. It's much more enlightening when it comes to the subject. That's really all I have left to say. Amelia Jones isn't another Sundance film, though, with Hugh Laurie and Himesh Patel and Gemma Arterton called The Amazing Maurice. Um, That's an animated film. Yeah, well, you know, there you go. Yeah, it's about I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's better than this. So, yeah, probably. Uh, I, I'm, I'm now mentioning him on like every single episode, but friend of the pod, Zach Ford, did watch The Amazing Maurice with his uh, with his young son. Oh, that's um, cute. I think I saw he gave it like three stars or something. So. I guess it's fine. Um, anyway, moving on, Scott, to um, a different, much more positive, much lighter note than Cat Person. Sure. Um, a film that we both watched and I think both very much enjoyed. It was my favorite film that I watched at the festival and probably the one I was excited to watch the most. Uh, lived up to the hype. Theater Camp. Uh, Scott, this is the debut, a directorial debut um, of the duo of Molly Gordon and uh, Nick Lieberman. Um, Nick Lieberman will not really be somebody who um, is known to people. Probably he is not an actor. He's he's simply a director. He's directed a couple of short films, including the short from which this film was adapted. Um, but Molly Gordon, of course, we're bringing it up again. We just brought it up in relation to uh, Cat Person, but Booksmart, um, one of her more famous roles. She's also um, in. Uh, Shiva Baby, the Emma Seligman uh, movie, which turned into kind of a sleeper hit a couple years ago. Um, she played AAA in, um, in Booksmart. Um, and uh, yeah, and then was kind of the co-lead to Rachel Sennett in um, Shiva Baby. But um, they have co-directed this film. They've also written this film along with um, Noah Galvin, who again from was from Booksmart. What's his character's name in Booksmart, Scott? I think he's George. George, yeah. Um, Great, kind character. of a scene, scene stealer, yeah. yeah. And then uh, Ben Platt as well. Again, somebody that people will be familiar with. You know, accomplished stage actor um, is what he's most known for. You know, originated at, at, at the this role point. Of, Originated I mean, the he, role of Evan Hansen in Dear yeah. Evan Hansen. I, I feel like he's he's getting more known for other things besides his the, his theater work. Yeah. But yeah, he's appeared in like some Ryan Murphy projects and stuff like that. He was a politician. politician. Um, yeah. But um, all of them sort of uh, wrote this film together and are real life friends. I believe that I believe that like Molly Gordon, Ben Platt, Beanie Feldstein. I think they all like went to the same high school um, or, or something like that. Like they've known each other for a long time. Uh, there's like a sort of friend group there. Um, I, I forget who actually who exactly is in it, but, um, you know, mm -hmm. they're all sort of circulating around it. But anyway, they're all God, they're all Nepo a, babies. So there you go. Yeah, <laughs> this is a. Um, Christopher Guest style mo mockumentary. Christopher Guest, you know, is most known for his, you know, famous mockumentaries like Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, uh, A Mighty Wind. Um, he kind of is like the the godfather of that genre. Um, and it is uh, the same sort of thing as a Christopher Guest film. It is set at this theater camp in, I don't know, it, where exactly is it? Um, in the Adirondacks. In the Adirond Upstate Adirondacks. Adirondacks, yeah. So northeast. Yeah. Um, 
and it um it's it's it basically set, like it's very similar to the catskills in Maisel, right it's like this jewish yeah. you know date like summer retreat camp. yeah yeah uh but it is a, it is a, a theater camp for kids you know up to teenagers um they're yeah. kind of kids of all ages there um but it has been a a theater camp you know a, a long-running theater camp um for many years it's and it was established in part by this woman joan who's uh played by Amy Sedaris in the movie. And uh, Joan falls very ill, is unable to run the theater camp for the, the summer in, in, you know, that the film takes place in. And so her son, uh, who is played by Jimmy Tatro, takes over the camp. Jimmy Tatro, probably, again, most known to people from his role as uh, Dylan Maxwell on American Vandal, um, but typically just plays a, you know, completely dumb dude bro type character. And once again, is doing that here. Um, but yeah, again, as as you can guess, um, you know, the Jimmy Tatro character, he's completely different from his mother. He doesn't have any sort of artistic um, inclinations. He doesn't um, understand theater really at all or art at all, it seems. And so he is now put in the position of, you know, for sentimental reasons, basically, he is going to go run this theater camp in his mother's stead. Um, big Post Malone cannot. guy, though. He's a big Post Malone yeah. fan. Um, and uh, he is assisted, though, of course, in this by the the counselors, which include Molly Gordon herself, who plays um, Rebecca Diane. There's also uh, Ben Platt. Um, he also, again, appears in the film just, and also co-writing it. He and Molly Gordon's characters are like, you know, BFFs, basically. Um, you have Nathan Lee Graham, who is from Hadestown. He's in, like, the touring company of Hadestown right now. I knew him as uh, being Hermes in Hadestown, but, uh, you know, a, a no notable stage actor. Um, you also have Ayo Edibiri, who she just appeared um, in uh, The Bear and got a lot of acclaim for her performance. I thought she was great in that. Um, she is one of the counselors. She plays a a character who doesn't actually know anything about theater, but basically sort of cons her way into the, the yeah. camp by like lying and saying that after does. after Jimmy Tatro's character fires all a lot of the staff because yes, he wants yeah. to cut bu cut budget, like essentially hire people local uh, for cheap. There's someone else I forgot. Oh, there's Caroline Aaron, right? Um, talking about Mrs. Maisel, who plays Shirley Maisel on Mrs. Maisel. She um yeah. she is the person who co-founded the camp basically with um, Amy Sedaris's character with Joan, so they she is also you know there sort of assisting. But did you talk um, about Noah Galvin? I mean, he's he plays. And Noah Galvin, yeah, he, he's like the engineer basically for the, yeah. the the camp. But essentially, what happens is they decide that the big musical at the close of the summer is going to be a tribute to Joan herself. And uh, Ben Platt and Molly Gordon's character always write the you know in closing musical for the theater camp so yeah. they now have to write a, a theater uh, a musical that is based around um joan's life, life basically yeah. and is a tribute to joan and uh, so the you know the majority of the movie is about them trying to to do that the casting process you know we meet some of the kids and everything who are involved in the musical also uh, at the same time jimmy tatro again he doesn't really know what he's doing and he is talking to patty harrison who um, is, what is her title exactly? I, I don't know, but she's she is negotiating with him to sell. She's, like some, the, she's essentially some like real estate 
consultant yeah. essentially is what it sounds like i don't know she's negotiating with him to sell the theater camp um to like the nearby camp that is like for rich kids where they give them all ipads and all this stuff and they want the land basically um and so they're negotiating and it it as you as you might predict it turns into a we have to pull off the musical to save the theater camp type situation um yeah. in the end and the third act of the movie is essentially we we see the musical or at least musical. snippets of it yeah. um joan still uh scott this movie is an absolute hoot um i was laughing so hard it was some of the hardest that i've laughed in a movie in the first 30 minutes, uh, I think I texted you like 30 minutes and I was like, I'm dying at this movie right now. Um, it will, it is a very, I mean, it is a specific type of humor, I guess. Like you're going to have to like be into the whole like theater kid energy. Um, but I just love some of the absurdity of the situations. Like when Molly Gordon is teaching a class to some of the students that she comes in, like playing this melody on a recorder uh, like this long melody she plays and then she just goes all right i want you to sing it back to me and just listening to all the kids try to sing it i was dying uh, and then you know just everything jimmy tatra does is kind of hilarious like he just nails this archetype but um it ends up being kind of a heartwarming movie in the end scott again they're doing a tribute to it it is it is making fun of theater people certainly it is certainly satirizing them but it is also a loving tribute to them in a way. And they're really, um, you know, reiterating throughout the movie that like, hey, this theater camp, right, it's for kids who don't fit in anywhere else. So like, you know, you may not see the importance of it from a financial perspective or whatever, but it is important to a lot of these people. And so, you know, we have to keep the theater camp running for that reason, because these kids don't have anywhere else to go, really. And it's juxtaposed next to like, you know, the bougie summer camp next door yeah. where all the rich kids, I guess, like the rich families send their kids to. It's very it looks very preppy. You know, the, the basic they give them iPads, like I said, they yeah. give them iPad. Yeah, exactly. It, you know, you have Patty Harrison's character essentially trying to buy the neighboring um, camps property so that they can combine it and make the other camp bigger and make more money. That is essentially what she's trying to do over the course of the movie. Uh, but yeah, so funny. The third act of the film, too, is just a real treat. Yeah, the, I was so impressed with the third act of this film because, again, we get to the actual musical. Um, and, you know, maybe it's not a huge surprise because the people who wrote the film are like in and around the world of theater and musical theater. Yeah, I mean, Ben but, Platt and Noah Galvin. I mean, that's yeah, how they. But the songs like in this musical are like. They are you they you could hear them on Broadway, like honestly, like I want to hear the the soundtrack of this movie. Like I want to hear the full songs uh, because they're great. Uh, yeah. And I was just like, really, I, I just wanted to watch even more of that last segment. That was just the sure. musical. Um, yeah. But I think, you know, again, I, I think the, all the characters are super entertaining. I really liked the performances of Ben Platt and um, and Molly Gordon. I think, you know, they're their friendship and dynamic works really well and they get a nice payoff moment at the end when the musical is um is going on that worked for me um i just thought it was great um it, it definitely it's it's gonna have huge rewatch value i think because it, it is it's pretty short yeah. um again it's just really funny it's the type of movie you just want to like throw on with other people laugh for 90 minutes it, it's going to be you know it has a lot of quotable lines and stuff like that in it. it's like, real pop it, on material yeah it feels like a book smart style like 
Oh, comedy yeah. like in the making, really. Like I'm sure that this thing is probably going to do gangbusters with a certain audience. When yeah, um, it's a very coastal audience. Not that you can't enjoy it if you don't live yeah. on you know in New York or LA, but it's going to play extremely well for those audiences. Yeah, just watching like the melodrama of the of you know so many of of these people is just <laughs> the, again the absurdity of it is hilarious. Oh, by the way, Alan Kim also yeah, appears. In don't this worry, film. shout was, out to I, Alan Kim uh, of Minari yeah. fame. Um, he agent plays like Junior. a little yeah. kid, yeah, who's trying to hustle everyone and like start his own agent business. Um, but hilarious. Uh, yeah, anything else you want to add, Scott? I love this movie. Yeah, uh, I, I will say if I was to point out one negative, uh, it is definitely the Patty Harrison yeah. angle is definitely the yeah, negative. weakest part of the movie. Yeah, um, but uh, but there it almost is like the, that sort of comes to a head right before you know at the end at the end of the second act of the film, and the fact that it's followed up by something that is just so good, kind of just I think papers over the cracks a little bit there. But I mean, yeah, the end of the film, I you know no not going to spoil it. Uh, what what happens but yeah i mean absolutely the the final number and then the film is just like i was just like what is happening this is outrageous what is happening like you, you genuinely just feel like you've been like hooked brutally um in a good way not in a bad way like it, they they really turn some stuff on on its head and when they're actually showing you the musical yeah very unrealistic but we'll give it to them it was a good time yeah yeah, th this is the one, you know, you're talking about Beyond Utopia. This is the one I would recommend to, to anyone. Again, it's probably not going to hit for everyone just because the sure. sense of humor, um, you know, might kind of be hit or miss for certain people. But I, I would recommend it to everyone just because it's so much fun to watch. Um, A great double feature with Beyond Utopia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> many people are saying this. Yeah. Um, all right, Scott. Now, uh, those are kind of our standout movies that we wanted to talk about. Sure. Why don't you quickly run through the other uh, stuff you watched and maybe give your short one or two sentence thoughts on each movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so we've covered Beyond Utopia and Theater Camp. Those are, you know, two of my three favorite movies of the festival. Talked about Cat Person and briefly enough, Brad, there's no reason to spend any more time talking about bad no. behavior. I'll, I'll no. tell you that much, uh, which are my least two favorite movies of the festival. My other big standout for me, which is a doc that, I'm looking on Letterboxd right now. Only 243 people have even marked it as watched on Letterboxd. I don't know how that compares, but that's got to be one of the most obscure movies that I watched at the festival. Um, yeah, I mean, Theater Camp has two and a half thousand, so that got a lot of that got a lot of eyes for sure. Um, yeah, so that and Victim. Yeah, so it, it's a documentary called Piano Forte. It's about the Chopin um, piano competition that's held every five years in poland i believe it's held in poland and it's a competition documentary in terms like chronicling in some ways scott i'll offer it's not exactly perfect a perfect comp but it's kind of like boy state not that yeah, boy state is they're a, saying is, on the big picture as well yeah yeah it's it's not exactly a perfect comp but that's probably the closest thing that i could compare it to that, that you would have seen in the past few years and i mean boy state's not exactly a competition it's a little bit different but I think the interesting thing that comes out of Piano Forte is that, yes, it is a competition where there are winners and losers and people get eliminated and they go home. Um, that, But it is almost like a communal effort, too. There's a lot of um, almost like the competition sits sort of internal, like how how well can you perform um, is really all, what this is all about. And yes, you're you're being compared to other people. But 
at the very beginning of the documentary, one of one of the subjects that they follow throughout the competition, um, Alex is talking about how nobody in music even likes to like likes to likes this competition because it's weird to compete about music. It's a weird thing to play piano and say, oh, this is better than this when you're not necessarily, you know, you're just doing you're not playing the same things. It's it's very interesting. And I was just sort of captivated by the whole the whole affair. It's only like a 90 ish minute documentary covering the most recent iteration of this competition, which I believe happened in 2021. And I don't know, I just had a great time. I enjoyed watching it. I don't know if it if it really mines some deep nuggets of wisdom at all, but I just found it a really compelling piece of documentary filmmaking. There are some really I think there are some really emotionally powerful moments, less so when you see um, you know, these individuals performing at the highest level. I mean, some of the best piano players in the world. Um, you sort of see them both competing while playing piano, but also behind the scenes. And I'd say it's less when you I mean, what they what they're doing is incredible. Like some of the shots that you get of them playing piano look outrageous. Like, I don't even know how your hands move the way these kids hands move. But I think that, that some of the most powerful moments are actually in the moments where you see people eliminated from the competition. There's one early on where one person who we didn't even follow in the competition, you never like have an interview with them or anything, but they get eliminated at the first stage at the end of the first stage of the competition. And they sort of show this airport, I guess, I don't know exactly what city in Poland this is from, but they, they show him departing at the airport and they're following, they have the camera crew following him. And there's this sort of piano sitting, I guess, in like the lobby of the airport. And he sort of sees it. He walks over to it and starts playing. And you see this huge congregation of people um, come over and to the point where like some people are like literally crying, listening to him play the piano because he's that good at playing piano. And this kid, like you're just thinking about this kid just like got eliminated at the first stage of this competition. And he's like literally walk. He walks out, goes and plays the piano in public and is making people cry. It's just like kind of outrageous. Um, one, the quality, but two, I think it's really important, I think, to remember why people play the piano. Like, what is it for? And I think that's one of the things the documentaries explain a lot. Like, there's clearly one person who is playing for ambition and just trying to make a career out of it. And then there's some people who it seems like the motivations for playing piano are a little bit more mixed, right? There's some people, there is an element of ambition out of it and making a career out of it. But then there's also an ambition of, of playing it for the love of the music, um, of the pieces that, of music that have been written and that you get to play. And I think that the documentary probably is the most impactful emotionally when it's highlighting those elements of it. But it's also just very compelling um, piece of competition documentary filmmaking. And I'd recommend it. Um, that was more than a couple sentences. I apologize. I'll be briefer <laughs> on the other ones just because I liked Pianoforte so much. I wanted to talk about it. But then I also told, saw Fair Play. One of the bigger films of the festival this year it was it's already been acquired by Netflix. I think it was the most expensive acquisition at the festival. It is. Um, I don't know. You, you would know the comps better than me for what this film is like, but it is essentially a, a competitive workplace thriller of a, you know, a couple who are hiding the fact that they're in a relationship with each other. They work at a highly competitive hedge fund in New York city and their relationship begins to uh, unravel. We'll say as a promotion comes available at their office and one of them receives said promotion. And it, it very much becomes like a psychological thriller this is like sort of the other film that I saw at the festival that I would I would say there's like a light a light comparison to Promising Young Woman, but I think that this is what I would have a what a reasonable ending for Promising Young Woman might have been, um, is what is what I'll say. 
um, without trying to spoil without spoiling too much there. I think that it, it does not go way overboard like Promising Young Woman or Cat Person does. It, it tries to, I think, be more reasonable measured. I still think it goes to a place that's like pretty, you know, relatively crazy. Um, but I think if you want some sort of like, quote unquote, revenge fantasy type experience, I think this is something that I, I found it to be more emotionally effective than something like Promising Young Woman. Um, it's certainly cat person. Um, that's fair play. I'd recommend it. I definitely would recommend it, Scott. I, you know, I, I, I told the promising young woman comp to you right after I saw the film and you were like, well, you're not selling it to me right now. Um, I still want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are comparing this just, just saying it's industry and movie form. I've only watched the first season of industry, um, not the second. So I don't know if there's better comps in the second season, but, uh, you know, not an unfair comparison. Um, I don't know if I totally 100% see the overall. Like I see, I see it on paper what they're talking about because industry is a you know HBO show about all these young aspiring you know investment bankers who are, are all friends and hooking up with each other, but also competing at work with each other. So I kind of get it in that spec. But I think that the energy of this film and the thriller elements of this really get ratcheted up um, compared to at least what I saw in the first season of industry. Going from there. I also saw, sorry, that was, that was fair play. I also saw a documentary called the eternal memory. Um, it's an Alzheimer's doc. I don't really have too much to say about it. Um, you know, it's a really interesting look into, um, a, an, an elderly, an aging man's journey with Alzheimer's and also his caregiver, who's his wife, um, who's taking care of him and the experience for her. I found it very moving at times. Um, it sort of surprised me with how gentle it was for a while. Um, before it really starts to show the descent um, into the disease, which obviously is pretty harrowing stuff for anyone who has experience, you know, familial experience with it, including myself. I also saw a documentary called Om, The Cult at the End of the World. That is the documentary about the Japanese cult that eventually and ultimately sort of released sarin gas in the Tokyo subway system in 1995. I think it was 1995. Um riveting documentary. I think the way that I'd describe it to people is that this feels like a PBS documentary that your history teacher would put on um, in like world history class at school. I don't mean that in an entirely negative way, but I, it's not really mining anything deeper out of just like the plain history of what happened. I think at the end, it, it tries to shoehorn in like some element of accountability for the government and showing how the Japanese government really is essentially to blame for how extreme the situation got leading to the sarin gas being released to the Tokyo subway system. Like there are so many opportunities they had to potentially crack down on this cult and, and nip it in the bud, but they didn't. And they've never really been held accountable. It tries to shoehorn that in at the end. It didn't feel like it was properly threaded enough throughout and was really about that level of accountability. I think it would have improved the film a lot if they could have woven that in a little bit more, but instead they sort of go for the almost more like historical facts element, which again, I don't have a problem with it. I just think it made it less impactful at the end of the day. I'd still recommend it if the if the story interests you at all. It's pretty, I mean, it's outrageous, to say the least. Um, the fact that in the last 30 years or whatever, you know, sarin gas, like the gas that the Nazis in World War II developed um, was just released in a public subway system. It's just one of the more outrageous terrorist acts that's happened in the world um, in the last 30 years. Really quickly, the last two films to talk about, I saw a dramatic feature called The Accidental Getaway Driver. 
people were talking about that and I wasn't expecting it to be, but people were like comping to collateral because it's this guy who sort of gets roped into driving around um, these criminals through parts of LA um, after what he thought was just like a routine cab pickup. It is not collateral guys. This film is not collateral. The fact that you would sell this even like remotely like collateral is crazy. Um, that is a Michael Mann action thriller film. This is a deeply like almost like James Gray esque introspective drama about belonging, about found family, about what it means to um, have a purpose. Um, it's a very different uh, kind of film than that. Again, that's more of what I was expecting based on the description of the film. But then like lead lines of reviews were like not quite collateral. My guy, this is definitely not even close to collateral. I don't know what people were talking about in their reviews. I mean, I know it's just like some famous movie you could attach to it as part of your review or whatever, but a really, really silly thing. Uh, very serious. It, it sort of didn't quite hook me in the first hour um, to the point where by the time I think it really starts to show its cards, I wasn't invested enough in the characters for it to have a fully impactful narrative. But it does have a few nice moments at the end of the film. Um, this does not have distribution. I don't know if anyone will pick this film up. It's pretty. It's a pretty quiet film, I'd imagine. The last film I saw, uh, the last film I'll talk about that I saw at the festival was a Netflix documentary called Victim Suspect. Scott, I'll say this is actually the film that was seen the least, um, according by Letterbox members at least, during the festival. Only 176 people have marked this as watched. But this is a film where the subject matter is intense, right? It is a film about sexual assault, sexual violence these crimes being reported to the police and then mostly women, of course, reporting these crimes and it's then turned on its head. And these women, sometimes men are then accused by the police of falsifying rec of falsifying um, police reports, submitting false uh, false allegations essentially. And then they end up being prosecuted for it. They'll sometimes uh, accept plea deals to get themselves out of these situations. And it's permanently on the record. The, Film really looks at two people's cases specifically through the lens of a journalist named Rachel DeLeon, who is writing this big investigative piece for the Center for Investigative Reporting. Um, and that is about two women, Emma Mannion, who was a University of Alabama student. And the second being uh, Diane, Diane Bermeo, who I believe is, uh, I can't remember what school she went to, but she was in Washington State, I believe. Um and a similar had had a very similar experience. And yeah, I thought the film was really interesting. It, it sort of adds to the group of documentaries that have been produced over the last, you know, you know, decade or less where it's adding, you know, fuel to the fire, I would say, of why the system of of reporting sexual violence is so broken. And you know, there's some that take a look at the college lens, there's some that take a look um at other lenses as well and this one really sort of narrows in and focuses in on the process through which women um or victims of these crimes are treated by the police even when they decide to go ahead and and report their crimes and some so severe that they then end up themselves becoming uh becoming the suspects um in the investigations it's you know just pretty disgusting stuff overall i like that the film actually went into something that i learned in my psychology and law class when we were doing false um, um, false confessions, the read technique, the technique used by and taught to nearly every investigative police officer to extract information from suspects that they're interrogating. Incredibly manipulative stuff. It's like pretty remarkable. 
Um, we even watched like the whole read technique video series um, as homework for that class to to show um, exactly what police officers are told. And some of it is is outrageous. They show parts of it. They sort of skip. I wouldn't say they scapegoat it because they properly identify that this is a serious thing that's wrong with the institution of um, collecting information in general, but specifically as it relates to these highly traumatic situations where um, one, the the victim is extremely traumatized and whose memory, especially if they're intoxicated, can be very shaky. These techniques are especially um, effective in quotation marks in those situations. And you can see how things begin to sort of fall apart very quickly because of the pressure that you're putting on those specific memories when they're so fragile um, in the in the way that, you know, you may not be remembering things clearly already. And then you have things like false information the police are giving you to try to trip you up and confuse your story um, to sort of test whether you're being honest or not being thrown into the mix as well. It's a really, really bad look to say the least. But, um, you know, it, it's kind of strange that as, as compelling as some of the footage is and what the film does, I do think there are some missteps in and how it's ultimately presented not in the footage itself or the stories that are being told, but just sort of choices here and there designed to reframe the story through the lens of this journalist, Rachel DeLeon, whose hard work is obviously extremely critical to these stories being told, but it's not always framed in the way that you maybe would expect from a journalist perspective. And some of the tidbits that they throw in here and there come off very awkward um, and a bit out of place at certain moments in the film. And in some ways, it sort of dilutes the message and undermines, not necessarily undermines, but just um, sort of softens the blow, I think, of some of these things when you have random pop-ins here and there. A really important subject matter, um, but maybe not the best presentation overall. And that was my 10 films at the Sundance Film Festival. Yeah, I also saw Victim Suspect, Scott. Um, and I'm, I mostly agree with you. And I think some of the, the footage that they have of like the actual police interviews and everything is so... Yeah compelling on its own that i can all kind of recommend it based on that but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's not a lot beyond the actual just facts of of what's going on here again i think the presentation of it is at at best uninteresting it, it's weak and it's weak. at worst yeah like kind of um distracting i guess um yeah. so yeah, I, it's very Netflixy. Like, I'm not surprised that Netflix is as well. It's it's so interesting because it, it's such a perfect pair with um that what one of the best limited series that Netflix has ever made called Unbelievable. Uh, Caitlin Deaver is mm -hmm. one of the leads, along with Merritt Weaver and Tony Collette. Incredible, incredible limited series where this exact thing happens. Um, Caitlin Deaver's character reports um a sexual assault to the police. And then she ends up being arrested for um, falsifying police uh, police report or falsified police report, a false allegation. And then, like, obviously, there's a whole lot go else going on in the limit series. But that like literally happens in the in the limit. And that's based on a true story of, as well. And it's such an interesting pairing because it does fit so nicely together. But, yeah, I definitely had hope for the quality of this documentary to be up to par with the quality of that limited series. Yeah. Um, Scott, just two other films that I saw that I haven't talked about yet. Um, the Starling Girl. This is um, a debut feature from uh, writer-director Laurel Parmet. Um, basically, story of a young teenage girl played by Eliza Scanlon, who um, is very involved with her church and, and lives, in fact, in this sort of very isolated, heavily religious community. Um, 
fundamentalist like Christian community and uh, ends up entering into a forbidden affair with her youth pastor who is played by Lewis Pullman, uh, who we saw as Bob from uh, Top Gun Maverick. But um, yeah, Scott, it's a, so he, it's a very he well. Big Southern pastor vibes, Bob does. Yeah. I mean, as a character, Bill Pullman's got yeah, that. He, he pulls it off. Lewis yeah. Pullman. Bill Pullman. So, is his dad. Not Bill Pullman. Um, yeah, not, not Bill yeah. Pullman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he pulls um, it off. Lewis Pullman pulls it off. Nice. I saw what you did there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he does. But um, yeah, no, he um, he's good in the movie. It's a very well-made movie, Scott. And you can tell it comes from a personal experience, which it does. The, uh, the you know, the director laurel permit was very upfront about that i'm very interested to see what she does next just because i think it is a very well-made movie it's visually interesting um eliza scanlon as always is great as pl at playing a woman who's going through it that's basically all she does in, in her movies but um you know she's very good at it um i just think in the end it's just you kind of know where this movie's going the story doesn't really go in any surprising directions it's a little predictable and it's a little bit too long as well um but there's an interest there's a good subplot involving jimmy simpson um as eliza scanlon's father and the way that they treat that storyline and sort of draw some parallels with um with his daughter's storyline is the most interesting part of the story so it's a good movie i would recommend it um, but it's nothing groundbreaking in my opinion. I think the filmmaker will go on to do better things. Uh, so that's the Starling Girl. And then Sometimes I Think About Dying was the other film I saw. Um, and the director's name is escaping me at the moment. But um, this is basically a story of a, a woman played by Daisy Ridley who works in a menial office job and um, is very isolated and reserved um and just really keeps to herself and a new guy um who's played by mike something i, I can't again i can't think of his last name he's a comedian um he is a new employee at the office and he like actually takes some interest in her starts trying to talk with her and um they end up you know kind of entering into a romance um there's no one on the cast list named mike so i'm not sure about that what's his name there's Dave Merhaji. Yeah, Dave. I don't know why I thought his name was Mike, but yeah, Meherje or Meherji or something like that. Yeah, directed by um, Rachel Lambert. Rachel Lambert. Yeah, um, but it's a very. This is the definition of like a you know quaint little Sundance film, like you know um, <laughs> yeah. a little prayer. Like I was saying, I think it has a lot more to it. Like you expected, that's what it's going to be, and then it like actually kind of hits you with a, a truck in the end. Um, but this kind of, I don't know that it ever gets out of that gear. I still like the movie. I think in particular, it's portrayal of like the menial office environment, particularly for somebody who like, ha particularly um, from the perspective of a character who has like severe social anxiety, as we can clearly see the Daisy really character does. Um, is very effective and atmospheric. Like, that is the strongest stuff in the movie. Like, you know, I work in primarily an office job, and, like, I recognize a lot of the little moments and everything, and, like, you know, people bringing food into the office and just, like, coworkers just talking about stuff while you're at your computer. It, it's, they get the office job part of it, like, dead on. The actual romance and everything, you know, it's it's nice enough, but 
it um, it just feels slight in the end, I think is my overall um, comment for this film. So I still liked it. I think Daisy Ridley is great. Like, I think she's the best thing about the movie. It was great to see her, you know, outside of the context of Star Wars doing something different. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of a, a, you know, quaint little Sundance movie. I'm not sure who's going to pick this up. I'm not sure. Um, how widely seen it's going to be, but um, it was it was good. It was it was a solid movie. Some indie, um, some indie distributor will pick it up, like yeah. Momentum or something like that. Yeah, that feels right. Um, but yeah, there you go, Scott. Those were the seven films I saw at um, at the Sundance Film Festival. So a good sample for you know some stuff that is to come. Um, in 2023. Of course, Scott, in a few weeks, we'll be doing our most anticipated films of 2023. So we'll be getting into some of the more higher profile films um, than some of the ones we were talking about today. Um, but a lot to look forward to in 2023. And I think, you know, I've enjoyed uh, having Sundance as sort of the kickoff um, to a it's new nice. year in movies for the last yeah. three years. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure Sundance is going to continue doing this visual um visual this virtual um, part of the festival yeah, yeah. but um and and i hope they do because uh you know I, I, again i think it's bringing more exposure to exposure to their festival and you know it's hard to say like what the long-lasting impact will be but like you know something like cha-cha real smooth last year for example was a movie that um won i think the audience award and then you know like people started talking about, Hey, like, you know, it, this movie's great. Like when it was um, playing at Sundance, like from, from the very, when it originally premiered at Sundance. And I think it ended up catching on to a lot of more people's radar just because, you know, they'd already heard people talking about it in January um, when it eventually came out a few months later on Apple TV plus. And obviously Coda, you know, was, ended up being a huge, um, success story a couple of years ago and winning best picture. Um, so I think it's, it, it makes sense is what I'm saying from, for, for a Sunday, for a festival like Sundance, where you don't necessarily have films that everyone is already anticipating and is going to be seeing anyway, like in the case of, you know, the fall festivals, like you're saying, um, to yeah. have this virtual time where, you know, a general audience can discover, Hey, maybe, a, a little sleeper film like Kodak and capture the hearts of people in January and end up winning best picture. So, all right, Scott, uh, that'll do it for this episode of some like it, Scott, where can our listeners find you on Twitter at Shelton two zero one three. And I am at Scarby Dent on all social media platforms as well. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have, and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash media plug pods. Uh, even if you can't support us over there, however, we hope you will rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast. On our next episode, our good friend Paul Oyama will be joining us, and we will be uh, handing down the 2023 Some Like It Scott Awards just in time for Oscar season. So you won't want to miss that episode. We'll truly be signing off from 2022 films by highlighting the best performances, uh, screenplays, moments, scenes uh, from a great year in film. And Paul will be joining us to do that. So uh, that's our next episode. Until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.